1: Dr. Philip Goff, it's wonderful to have you, a British thinker, philosopher, scientist also, who is an author of a great book, Galileo's Error, and wants to put consciousness in the mainstream thinking, not only in philosophy, but hopefully also in science, and has contributed great ideas, discussed this with other thinkers, philosophers, and writers. And it's really a joy to have you and to discuss with you this reality that we, you and I both believe is fundamental. You have had started actually by being a materialist as I I see in your wonderful book and your writings, and then found that you're not a zombie when, when you thought about the conceivability argument or thought, and that finally you came to grips with consciousness being very, very fundamental, actually, even monistic in the sense that consciousness is the reality. There is something which you have championed in a wonderful way already from the scientific perspective, and that is that science doesn't really go into what things are, but what things do. And I think this is quite a very important, fundamental aspect if you would like to explain this to our viewers like people think science is probing into matter it's probing into the reality and it's showing us how things are and what they are but maybe that's not the case
0: yeah that's a really good place to start and i mean thanks for having me on thanks for the very kind words and i've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time and yeah it's it's gonna it's gonna be good to talk about these things that is a good place to start. I think you're totally right that people do have this sense that physics is giving us this complete story of the nature of space and time and matter. It's not there yet. We've still got lots of T's to cross and I's to dot, but you know, the thought is someday physics will present us this grand unified story and that will be the complete story of everything. But one famous line from from the end of Stephen Hawking's rightly famous book, The Brief History of Time, he says that even a a final complete theory of physics will just be equations. It won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. And he doesn't really go into much. This is sort of a poetic way of putting things. But actually, this, this closely connects with the reason panpsychism has come to be recently taken so seriously in contemporary Anglophone philosophy, something that was kind of laughed at insofar as it was thought of at all, once again come to be something that people are taking seriously and writing about and thinking of. And part of this is, is a rediscovery of certain very important work from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell who everyone, everyone knows Bertrand Russell for his logical linguistic work, maybe for his pacifism. But people don't know this crucial work on consciousness. It was almost forgotten about for such a long period of time. But it's recently been not rediscovered literally like it was literally lost, but a renewed focus on it and lots of books and articles published on it. And really what, what Russell was doing in the 1920s that, that people had done before him, I think, but people like Alfred North Whitehead, for example, we find precedent for it in people like Schopenhauer. But what Russell really brought into focus for the first time was just thinking what it means that our fundamental science is purely mathematical. We sort of kind of take that for granted, but, and of course it's, it's very useful if you're a working scientist That physics is mathematical, you can get very precise predictions, very precisely quantify things. But what does it mean as a philosopher interested in the fundamental, ultimate nature of reality? That our fundamental science is purely mathematical. And and, but roughly you can go two ways with this. You might you might think, well, what, what that shows is that ultimate reality itself is purely mathematical. If our basic science is mathematical, maybe that means the universe we live in is made up of functions and numbers and vectors, the kind of things we find in mathematical physics. Seems a rather insubstantial theory of reality, but maybe that's one option. But another equally plausible at least option, and this is the one Russell entertained, is well maybe there's something underlying the mathematics. There's something those mathematical structures are them are the structure of and this is this is the the direction russell pointed to maybe there's something as hawking put that breathes fire into the equations so yeah as you say what, what another way of putting this is that physics just really tells us what stuff does and that's very useful information if you know what stuff does you can create incredible technology manipulate the natural world in all sorts of ways and that's really important as a working scientist as a technologist what an electron does but then as a philosopher you might want to know okay but what is it what is
1: an electron in and of itself and about this physics just leaves us in the dark Absolutely. It's beautiful. And just to complete the thought, you know, people go beyond the electron, of course, to the quantum mechanical. And that also has become a big subject of discussion, whether once we cross the classical localized aspects of matter, whether we are coming into something that is consciousness or is conscious in some way. And even some go to talking about the dark matter and dark energy and others about the unified more unified fields that are themselves also as you beautifully say mostly mathematical and based on equations but do they get us closer to what things are rather than what things do do you feel in any way it is it is getting there
0: that's right but it's if you look at theoretical physics these days a lot of it isn't the mechanic, mechanistic little billiard balls bumping around that we knew in 19th century physics. Um, many, many physicists think the fundamental reality is not even space and time or space-time even, as Einstein put it after unifying the two. It's rather something highly esoteric called the quantum wave function. what is the quantum wave function? It's a very odd structure in very high dimensional space. How many dimensions you take the number of particles in the universe times it by three that's the number of dimensions in quantum wave function. this is not these are not spatio-temporal dimensions. this is a reality in which there isn't space-time which there is just a highly unusual Mathematical structure that on the face of it seems to bear little resemblance to the three dimensional world we experience around us of space and time. So, I mean, some philosophers of physics, uh, like Tim Maudlin from New York University, he doesn't focus so much on consciousness. He just worries how the hell do we get the tables and chairs out of this? You know, if, we, if we've got little billiard balls, we can make sense of them coming together to make a table. But out of this quantum wave function, how do we get tables and chairs out of that? So he actually, he he thinks, he argues this is just what he calls empirically incoherent. His thought is, I mean, the experiments we use to test these theories involve three-dimensional objects in space and time. And if this supposed theory we end up with can't even account for three-dimensional objects in space and time, then it seems to sort of undermine Pull the rug from under us, undermine the very evidence we're basing our theories on. So he thinks, you know, physicists are getting a bit carried away with the mathematics, ending up with some mathematics that works really well in terms of predictions, but then they're just too quickly reading off the ontology from that. That is to say, reading off what the real world is like. I mean, Sean Carroll, who I talk to a lot, the theoretical physicist, he thinks what's at the fundamental level of reality is just a vector in high dimensional space that's it so i mean so, so there are already these debates about how we can get tables and chairs out of that very esoteric reality what i'm more interested in interested in that debate but it's not my area of expertise what i'm more interested in is can you get consciousness out of that and and really i think this is the fundamental question we face as philosophers Do you start with physics, mathematical physics, and try and get consciousness out of that? Or do you start with consciousness and try and get physics out of consciousness? I actually think the first one is impossible to do. It just doesn't really, when you really think it through carefully, philosophically, the idea of getting subjective, qualitative experience out of objective quantitative mathematical structure just doesn't make sense. We could talk more about that. The other option, getting physics out of consciousness, although it sounds a bit weird at first, actually turns out to be incredibly easy to do. And this was really Bertrand Russell's insight. The thought is simply, given that physics is purely mathematical, very abstract. Russell famously said, physics is mathematical, not because it tells us so much, but because it tells us so little, it's just giving us this abstract structure. So, as long as there's something in ultimate reality that can fill out that structure, can create the right, you know, maths is just sort of patterns, isn't it? As long as there's stuff that through its interactions creates the right patterns, then you get physics. So, that stuff could be consciousness stuff, could be, could be, um, networks of conscious entities, simple conscious entities could be a huge consciousness field with some kind of complicated experiential structure, whatever it is, as long as it's got the right math, mathematical structure, we can get physics out of it. So consciousness out of physics, incoherent, physics out of consciousness, quite easy. So that's really, in a nutshell, the case
1: for something like panpsychism. Wonderful. Yeah, it's really, really amazing, particularly when you see that those who examine the reality of the physical are ending up with saying things like controlled hallucination and a dream, you know, like a shared dream. And Donald Hoffman, you know, saying that we don't see the the reality is like that. So all those who have looked at it have realized that our physical makeup whatever we call physical makeup, of course, we think that it's all consciousness and the dynamics of consciousness, is only one perspective on reality. It's that perspective of that makeup of dynamics of consciousness, which we call a human being, that has a certain perspective on an aspect of reality. But the ultimate reality in itself is something different. And so the problem ultimately is being now changed from the hard problem of consciousness. I feel it should be, if there is a hard problem, it should be the hard problem of physicalness. This is what thinkers and scientists should be putting their attention on as, you know, how can we then from consciousness explain that there are tables and all of that. And knowing that they are also only one perspective because a table is a human perspective for the, I don't know, the Geiger counter or another examining entity, it's completely different reality. The red is red for us, but for a colorblind person, there is no red. For another animal, it might be just wavelengths of a certain kind of activation of things. So this is... This is really wonderful to go in that direction. Now there is something that sometimes confuses people when we look at panpsychism and that's probably because there were many dualist panpsychists, and also for terms that are used when describing things, for example, saying like an electron has some level of consciousness or has some meager, although meager and minimal level of consciousness people will say, well, then there is an electron and it has consciousness. So how do you address that to make sure that we don't get into the dualist sometimes perspective of panpsychists, some panpsychists at least?
0: Absolutely. I think that's a very important point. The physicist Sabine Hossenfelder, who's a very interesting thinker, not one I agree with on a lot, but you know, it's, it's, it's great intellectuals putting their ideas out there and you know stimulating thought and it's fantastic but anyway she had a a blog post a few years ago critiquing panpsychism but she was interpreting it in this dualistic way that you pointed to thinking oh electrons on panpsychism have their physical properties like mass and charge and so on and then also have these spooky consciousness properties. (laughs) And then her thought was, well, that would show up in our experiments, right? Our experiments are based on the physical properties. If there were these other properties, that would show up. But that's just a misunderstanding of of panpsychism, at least the kind of Bertrand Russell-inspired panpsychism that's taken very seriously today. It's not so much that we need to change physics. It's you know the the panpsychists say physics is 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 fine as it is, right? It's a it's a mathematical structure. It's just saying there's something underlying that mathematical structure. There's something that breathes fire into those equations. So so physics is fine as it is. I mean, an analogy we might give it's maybe a bit like say you know a, a cellular biologist hearing physicists talk about wave functions. And the biologist says, Well, look, I I know all about cells in animals and tigers and lions. And I don't see any wave functions when I look in the cellular makeup of a of a lion. So I don't believe in wave functions. Of course, that the misunderstanding is that the wave function is at a deeper level than the reality we find at the biological level. Similarly, I think Hossenfelder is making the similar mistake that the panpsychist is not trying to say something about the level of physics, it's saying that there's a a deeper level underlying that. And those kind of worries, I think, evaporate at that point.
1: Wonderful. So to highlight this and Philip Goff's vision of panpsychism, it is not that there are electrons and suddenly they have some other quality different from what they are that is called consciousness. And then how can this happen? It's that they are actually consciousness. Now, the question comes is, like where do we start? If we're going back to ultimate reality, are we starting with sprinkle of an infinite number almost of sprinkles of tiny little bits of consciousness that kind of come together to build up higher consciousness? Or what is the starting point? And when we say panpsychism, already we're saying that it's everywhere. Now, if we go to the primordial level before let's say if we imagine a journey before the big bang or something how these sprinkles or fairy dust of of consciousness emerge and then how do they combine to create higher consciousness
0: good yeah that's very uh, getting to the heart of it i think so i mean there are a couple of options panpsychism is is not a single view there are uh, there is an emerging panpsychist research community of scientists and philosophers who spell this out in different ways. I suppose for the sake of simplicity, I tend to talk about conscious particles. So the idea would be that the, the fundamental building blocks of reality are these um, very simple conscious entities Um and because they have very simple experiences, they behave in very simple, predictable ways through their interactions, they realize certain mathematical structures. And then the thought would be physics is it just is those mathematical structures that comes out of that. But, but probably actually I, for various reasons, not least because this is how theoretical physicists like to think about things i prefer more of a field ontology to think that the you know most physicists don't think the building the fundamental building blocks of reality are little particles they think that they are universe wide fields and that particles are just excitations in, in in those fields so if you combine that with panpsychism the fundamental forms of consciousness will be the in a nature, the, the essential nature of those universe-wide fields. But on either on either form, yes, you, of course you then have the question, well, how does our consciousness come out of this? How does uh, the consciousness of the, the human or the animal brain come out of this? Um, that's, that, that's the more challenging way. it's easy. It's easy. I, it's, I said it's easy to get physics out of consciousness, but the challenge is how do we get our consciousness? From simpler forms of consciousness. Um, and here again, there is a split. Some panpsychists want to tell a very reductionist story that's, that's, that's still very, very close to materialism. They want to just say, really, my mind is my brain, and that's just really just a complex aggregate of um, conscious particles. Just want, once you put a load of conscious particles together in the right way, that's what a con that's what a conscious brain is I I'm less and less I mean I guess in my published books I've I've been open to this theory I guess I'm less and less sympathetic to it I I feel there's a deep unity to the human or the animal mind that resists that kind of reduction to it's not just a load of particles put together there's a deep unity to the mind also have worries about whether how we make sense of our agency and our capacity to respond to our understanding of value and meaning. If all that's in my head really is a group of bunch of particles, even if they do have their own consciousness, so I would I would be inclined to a, a less reductionist story where, let's say, that if if we're going to think in terms of particles, the particles, as well as having consciousness, have just basic capacities. In certain circumstances, to combine into unified wholes, and we should look to neuroscience to tell us when they do that, the nature of these powers. And you know, I, I like the integrated information theory one candidate for for when we get consciousness at the macroscopic level. That tells us there's it's when there's more integrated information in the whole than the parts. Well, if that turns out to be true, then the panpsychist view would be that particles have this capacity to when they come together in a system where there's more in the more integrated information in the whole than the parts, these combinatorial capacities kick in, and we get a unified conscious system. Or if we're starting with fields, which I prefer, then there would just be a capacity of the universe to decombine, if you like, fragment into islands of consciousness, and again in the same way we'd looked in neuroscience to see when that capacity kicks in so yeah that's the that that's the kind of in very broad brush strokes panpsychist view i'd go for of course there's many many details that will take centuries to fill in but that's the broad story
1: that's wonderful i have had my thoughts on that and also drawing on knowledge from ancient literature and myths and technologies and teachings, particularly in the Vedantic approach, where consciousness is all there is. By the way, our podcast has a title, it says consciousness is all there is. And in 2014, 2015, I wrote an article in the Journal of Consciousness and Mathematics, in which actually, I have also a view that rather than talking about individual conscious units or which would be particles and and that are actually conscious entities observers we can call them or actually fields we can start with one field why say fields you know we can start with one field of consciousness just what we would call pure consciousness and that because it's consciousness Its quality is naturally to be conscious. And when it is conscious, it looks at itself. And looking at itself, which means self-reflecting on itself, of course, there is nothing else but itself at the beginning. It comes out with flavors of itself. There is the flavor of the observer, the flavor of the process of observing, and the flavor of the object of observation. So it kind of already three values emanate from the one value of just consciousness looking at itself and not driven by anything or not trying to do anything except being itself which is consciousness. So that one pure consciousness starts seeing within itself multiplicity at least at this level of three values because There is the observer looking at itself, It's a self-referral process. And then from that emerge these interactions that can actually be mathematical and lead to complexification of looking at things from different perspectives. And that the whole universe is actually perspectives of consciousness on itself from an infinite number of perspective, of points of view. And so we can start from this, like one field, and then looking at itself in infinite number of ways. And then then we have to get into how manifestation emerges. How does actually that play of consciousness within itself lead to what we know in physics as the Big Bang and the forces, and then the collapse into electrons and whatever joining together and elementary particles and making atoms and molecules and then growing up. And, you know, this is not my talk today, it's yours, but <laughs> I wanted to share this point also. Absolutely. No, that's fascinating.
0: The philosopher uh, Miriel Bahari actually is someone who's explored a, a kind of similar sounding and also Vedantic inspired view, in fact, and it's fascinating that, you know, the tradition I come out of analytic philosophy, which is this very dry, you know, scientific logico-linguistic tradition where it used to be, you know, you ask the meaning of life, the analytic philosopher says, well, it depends what we mean by meaning. And, you know, tries to, the big question seemed off the table, but out of that very dry tradition has emerged, People defending panpsychism, but also Miri Al Bahari, who defends this um, mystical conception of reality, but but still in this style of kind of very dry, rigorous arguments, which has a value to it. I think it's almost like it's irrepressible. You know, we're trying to oh, let's do the yeah <laughs> dry logical stuff, but it it sort of emerges again. Yes, yeah, so I mean, I, I yes, I'm, I'm very interested in it. I mean, so she defends it. Both on the basis of mystical experiences or experiences of experienced meditators. And again, she defends this in this uh, analytic style by by arguing that we should think of expert meditators as expert testimony. So like you know when you when you think about it, a lot almost all of our knowledge is based on deferring to... Experts who you know I don't know, I believe the universe is, what is it 13, 14 billion years old. I don't know I don't understand the science behind that. You know, I believe humans are causing climate breakdown. I don't know the science, but we we sort of trust the experts. So she says, well, we should do the same with expert meditators, you know even if I've never experienced mystical conscious universal consciousness at the core of my being, I should trust the experts who have. So that's one way she defends it, but also, on, on the basis of just these arguments about the best explanation of consciousness. So yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I am very open. I mean, it's sort of a split in the panpsychist community, actually. I think we tend to think of panpsychism as a spiritual view, but actually, uh, I think there's a sort of split between those who, who want to say, oh, get rid of all this spiritual, mystical nonsense. We just, we want to make this a serious science, and we're just trying to explain consciousness. And um, on on my podcast, Mind Chatter, just this afternoon, actually, my, my my friend Angela Mendelevici, who's a panpsychist philosopher, who who very much takes this this approach. She's like, she's actually a nihilist about value and a sort of very serious atheist, and she's just like, I just believe in consciousness, not any mystical stuff. But on the other hand, there are people like. I guess myself, Miriel Bihari, Bahari, Hassel-Merck, who do, perhaps for independent reasons, have certain spiritual convictions and as well as the other advantages of panpsychism, see a panpsychist view as more consonant with those convictions it might be a little bit like the split you had in the psychoanalytic community between Freud and Jung. You know, Freud was like, stop all this religious nonsense, this is science. And, <laughs> but um, so I guess, I, I, but I guess I'm open to the argument, you know, I'm open to the argument that we should trust the experiences of those who've seriously investigated consciousness or those who've investigated consciousness, either through prolonged meditation or through taking some mind expanding substances or so on. I mean, I love um, William James, still the classic test on mystical experiences where he says, if we're to say to a mystic, you can't trust your mystical experiences, but I can trust my ordinary sensory experiences to get around the world, to do science. There seems a sort of double standard there. Exactly. <laughs> yes, mystical experience, perhaps mystical experience could be delusions, but so could ordinary sensory experiences
1: you know perhaps I'm... that's what dr anil said uh, keeps saying
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean perhaps i think all knowledge is ultimately rooted in trusting experience and if anything when people do have the mystical experiences they it's they claim it it seems to them more real than the. so i think we just have to take a pun on trusting experiences and once we do that i don't see why we shouldn't trust certain spiritual or mystical experiences as well as our ordinary experiences. So yeah, so I'd be very tempted to, I'm open to the kind of picture you're outlining on the basis of those considerations, perhaps, although if I'm not so sure, just in terms of the more mundane task of giving a science of consciousness, I'm not totally sure one will be led in that direction. Although, you know, p- perhaps I'm, you know, I'm open if, if the arguments. Might be there. I, I suppose I, I. I suppose I do also. Maybe you can help me. Have trouble sometimes with the idea that there's just one consciousness. It seems like if I'm feeling pleasure and you're feeling pain, or vice versa. Don't we have to say there are two minds there? I don't know. Having cut, I, I yes. do struggle with that a little bit.
1: Well, yes. I mean, first the ideas that are presented are not just because it is said in Vedanta or Parmenides or, you know, Spinoza or Leibniz. Many have thought through these factors, you know, even Carl Jung and the archetypes and Plato and the ideas. And uh, you mentioned Schopenhauer and all of these idealists in general. So it is not, you know, what I'm presenting is not just because it's Vedanta then it becomes a dogma and a belief system and we're not going there. I had a wonderful discussion with Dr. Rebecca Goldstein and when I discussed some points with her she said oh you're an idealist it's like Spinoza so you're like Spinoza thinking in that terms and I almost interjected and said but Spinoza used to think it's pantheism and I'm not talking about pantheism I'm not bringing it to that level of assuming that this is a God that is separate and that creates things separately. And she responded in a wonderful way, which made me also think. And she said, Well, what could Spinoza do at that time? If he didn't say it's pantheism, you know, he would be completely rejected, which he was anyway. <laughs> but he, even then, plugged in the idea of something that is separate, that is God and whatever the definition of God would have, would have been there. So when we say Spinoza's pantheism, it's actually we can take it to consciousness and then not try to make out of it something else. So to go back to that important point, and that is really when I mentioned this one consciousness, then looking at itself from different perspectives i highlighted that how does then the relative emerge which means the field of you and me you having you know to take care of the kids and i having to take care of my background or something like that and you're worried about something i'm happy about something you're happy about something else and i'm so how is that one consciousness what's going on So then you see multiplicity of consciousnesses, and we have to see the realism of this and the actuality of this. Otherwise, we don't have a true explanation of the reality of existence as we see it and experience it. And it becomes kind of conjectural. So there has to be a way to explain this. And the way I got around it is to say that when consciousness explores itself from infinite number of perspectives, it knows that it is the one consciousness kind of imagining like an author imagines characters of a fictitious book, a fictional book. And so they can imagine, and we humans can imagine anything. We can imagine people being happy. We can imagine people being in pain you can put plots and create plots and all of that but still these are not real so in that one big consciousness it's not only a unified state of pure being which we call pure consciousness but it has within it infinite imagination infinite potential for imagination because it's reflecting on itself and it can imagine the entire reality of anything yet they are still imaginary realities as if the author is just imagining characters now what it doesn't know because also we have to find the reason why this consciousness then appears as it appears why does the ultimate reality that we see and the physical actually appear as it appears why would it do that if it imagines everything the reason is it is imagining and it is consciousness. Consciousness means to know, to be conscious, to know itself. That is its own, if you are like Konatos, its own orme in, in Greek, or, or telos, the reason of being, because it's its nature to be conscious. Now, what is it not conscious of? Because it has all imaginary possibilities. Well, it has those from an unlimited perspective. It knows they are imagination. What it is like to actually put itself in the shoes of Philip Goff or Tony Nader or Mr. X, or of a bat, you know, to go back to Nagel. What it is like to be that? It doesn't know. What it has to do in order to have the full value of its own knowledge, it has to put itself in the shoes of these individual characters that it has imagined. So it knows what it is like to be Hitchcock or one character of Hitchcock or another, or live that reality. So it actually hides its own wholeness and assumes these individual characters and lives through them to know what it is like to be a bat, what it is like to be a Sox. You take the example of socks, <laughs> in one of your things by saying it's not because electrons are there that again, you know, they, they create a bundle of something and then socks. of course, you are familiar with something you've said, so then it, it really explains based on the original paradigm if you like the original axiom the original starting point it explains why we have these differences it is the same consciousness like you you like to experience physics you tried materialism you tried english you taught english it's good you know to give some of the history at the same time we went to Poland, did this, did that, you know, studied this, looking for truths. So you are the same person, but exploring these things. But however, you're doing it in a span of time. So time comes into the picture, space comes into the picture for separation. But all of this is the same you. And that same consciousness is actually you and me. We think we are different, but ultimately we are the same. So, sorry, I talked a lot. No, it's fascinating. Others want to hear from you. But really, to go back to the logic, it's not a logic based on dogma and just believing that, oh, somebody said that, and therefore, you know, let's adopt that. And it becomes like a religion or a belief system. I think if we're looking for truth as you and and others, and I also humbly put myself in that, (laughs) looking for the ultimate truth, we have to listen to different possibilities and we have to see that the ultimate truth in my point of view will be a convergence, as I think you beautifully also said it, a convergence of knowledge from physics, from chemistry, from biology, from neuroscience, from philosophy and all of them having to come together even in terms of trying to find logics that explain ontology epistemology and even ethics and if we can do this and unify all these at the same time, explain quantum mechanics and space and time and all the weirdness of reality then the explanatory power the togetherness the consistence and occam's razor also included not trying to find a million other reasons to explain this in a different way and adding things, it's going to lead us to the true understanding of ultimate reality.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I'd like to ask a couple of things on this, if it's okay. I, I mean, yeah, I need to think more about this. I, I suppose just I still can't stop worrying that. I mean, I guess I, I I was always a fan of Descartes. You know, I think therefore I am. The thing I know most of all is my own mind, and it seems to me like I, my mind, isn't enjoying ice cream right now. But of course, someone in the world is enjoying ice cream. And if we're the same mind, then it seems my mind is enjoying ice cream now. So so I don't know. Something here doesn't make sense. It like seems like I want to... I, I know my mind is not enjoying ice cream right now. But it seems like if the view you're describing is true my mind is enjoying ice cream right now, now or? well
1: it's it's not the same mind it's the same ah, consciousness i say with different minds see it's the mind and intellect and ego then get separated here so there is the individual mind there is the individual self mm. and in the ancient also vedic knowledge as you know taught by maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who i was trained with and practiced with and Inspired by, there is that sense of different levels of the self. There is the small self, which has a different name in Sanskrit, it's Ahamkar, and there is the bigger self, which is Atma, which is the universal self. And that every one of us sees themselves from a certain perspective. And that perspective of history, of the biographical self, the events that are happening is one aspect of reality and then there is an underlying ultimate aspect of reality which is the ultimate self and this is where also meditation happens i teach transcendental meditation this is our program and transcendental it means to go beyond so to go beyond the surface association of the mind with objects of perception and seeing oneself from these different perspectives as being your true ultimate reality and you transcend that which means you go beyond that and you go beyond that by going deep within yourself and you discover that transcendental consciousness that transcendental state it's a real experience so this brings us back to when you said the mystical experiences now, the mystical experiences by themselves can be this or that or the other, but what do they do to you also? Do they improve your life? Do they make you a better individual? Do they improve society? And so there is, again, a convergence of reasons. So if the mystical experience doesn't lead to progress or evolution or a better life, then you start saying, well, this is hallucination. You know, you take some drugs or some things and Okay, you know, you have an experience, but what does it do to you? What does it do to your family? What does it do to the evolution of life? Is it in tune with the logic and the paradigm that explains why things emerge and how they emerge and where they get us? So when there is a continuation and an explanation and actual evolution at the same time with the experience, then you say, well, this experience is useful. This experience is helpful and it's supportive, and so this is where it works. Now, to go back and complete the point you had, what is the separation in time and space is what separates mind from mind. Now, if you look at your own self, you're happy sometimes, any individual, you're sad some other times. Now you say, okay, I'm happy now, I'm sad, another time but is it the same self well yes but how come can i be happy and sad at the same time well this is why we have time because in the relative in the in the physical relative you need separation so you have different experiences and these separations can be either in time and we know that we can be separate in time now i'm happy now i'm not happy So, we say, oh, okay, so how come that same mind is happy? The answer is, of course, because it's a different time, so there is separation in time. Now, we go to space. When you say, I am happy, and my friend was a different mind, as if, or the same mind ultimately, same consciousness, not the same mind, they are separated in space. Separation in time and space is what plays in the field of the relative, of what I call relative, meaning the field of reality on the surface level of its reality. Whereas it's the same, it's the same consciousness, Mm. ultimately, the same ultimate consciousness going through these experiences. You see, if... If it was all happening in time, you wouldn't complain. You can say, okay, that one consciousness, well, now is happy, now is unhappy, now is joyful, now is in love, now is sad, now is this, now is that. And it's happening at different times. So the time is satisfactory. What you don't like is at the same time in different space, that takes us into what is time and space. And this is how we ultimately can resolve the fact that the one consciousness can have different minds we accept it in time we refuse it in space but that's because we don't know the true ultimate reality of time and space so this is just to answer your concern about they're both really really nice arguments there and and, yeah i mean i
0: certainly didn't mean to suggest that these things are accepted on dogma or whatever you know that these are perhaps partly except on the basis of experience and, and yeah, two really nice arguments there that we can judge these experience on their fruits and, and the analogy to time. I don't know how, well, how long do we want to do this specific tangent? But I, I suppose I, I do worry about that paradox of time. Like say I was uh, sad yesterday, happy today. How can one mind be happy and sad? I suppose my way of resolving that paradox or philosophers will disagree is I, I tend to embrace presentism, which is the view that actually only the present moment exists and the future is unreal, the past is unreal. And so perhaps that in some way resolves the paradox because me yesterday doesn't exist, but, but that's controversial. So um, you know, I, I think you make a good argument there that if, if we're all happy with this in the case of time, why can't the one subject experiencing different things at different times. What? Why not a similar thing with across space? And indeed, the, the, the panpsychist, one leading panpsychist, Hederhassel Merck, has, again, from this dry tradition of analytic philosophy, been exploring whether the metaphysical coherence of the idea of each of us being the same self, bringing in in exactly the consideration you're referring to here. So, yeah, so this is, you know, I think a cogent argument. Can I raise, I mean, another thing I worry about, I suppose, is so, I mean, I guess I'm a spiritual conviction. I get, My spiritual hero was um, Pierre Teilhard de Jardin. Yeah,
1: Pierre de Jardin, yeah. He was also a universalist and uh, collective consciousness.
0: Yeah, so he's, yeah, some kind of panpsychist had this vision of of an evolving universe evolving towards what he called the omega point what i like about this is the idea that exist this is what my new book is actually that existence has a purpose and it's 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 going somewhere and maybe the you know the the purpose is still unfolding and we don't entirely know what it is but that we can through our actions Contribute in some small way to that unfolding purpose, and I think this this helps me keep my ego in 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 um in the expression it keeps my ego under check. in check. In check. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. So I don't get wrapped up too much in my own concerns or the concerns of my family or so on. You know, to to think that ultimately, although those things will matter, what I'm ultimately trying to do is 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 contribute to some bigger purpose, and then I worry, and and you can correct me here i'm open to that but with more eastern spirituality it sort of seems to me like in a way it's not going anywhere because the one perfect mind that we all are we're sort of there from the start and we meditate to try and realize our identity with it all along and so then it seems to be like nothing's achieved <laughs> like it's it was it's it's the same as it was at the beginning and maybe this is just me being embedded in the more Abrahamic traditions, but although I certainly don't subscribe to a very traditional version of uh, any of those, but, you know, I like the idea that it's going somewhere new, maybe a kind of union with between the physical universe and the transcendent, but, but something new is coming into being, whereas I don't know if it sort of uh, bums me out a bit if it's, if if we just go back to what was there all along, probably I'm thinking about it in the wrong way though.
1: Uh, Schopenhauer went this way also I mean he, he actually took a vision that the original fullness or whatever it was is not complete and it's kind of assumes and works itself and there is then metacognition and metacognition comes in and then we take control of things etc it's something to debate of course the original impetus if you like the horme the impetus why Is a spontaneous desire. It's not even, I can't call it desire. It's a spontaneous process of knowing. Because the whole thing is about knowing. Now, in the absolute, it knows itself in a way that is holistic and complete. It doesn't know what it is like to be Philip Goff. And even the absolute, wants to know everything. If it can imagine Philip Goff, but it is like a character, but it doesn't, it cannot live Philip Goff. It cannot know Philip Goff. What it is like to be Thomas Nagel again. What it is like to be a bat. What it is like to be Tony. What is it like to be Velia. What it is like to be Francis or David or whoever. What it is like. It doesn't know because it's sitting there examining as an author looking at the thing. Now, the purpose is to know everything from the parts and from the whole level. So when you go through the process as an individual, we can say it is the big consciousness actually going through all of that and knowing To have freedom, this is another issue which, you know, it's a big discussion, we can have a whole talk about that, freedom and determinism and all of that, but seeing in one's shoes in a different kind of limited perspective, what it is like to feel, what it is like to know pain and joy and and, and everything, and where one would go, what would be the path, what would be the decision making in different possibilities, it doesn't know really what happens from those limited perspectives. So when the whole story unfolds, there is a more complete, actually, realization of its own nature. It is knowing itself from all these perspectives, not only from an unlimited perspective. And so now it truly knows itself, and that's the whole spontaneous unfoldment of all that there is. And then ultimately, of course, going back to the big self, because that's where we are drawn, and ultimately going back to the self, having achieved the past. So going through the synthetic and analytic path, it's knowing the parts and knowing the whole, that from the perspective of the parts, from the perspective of a small wholeness, of a bigger wholeness, of a bigger wholeness, and ultimately going back to the self. Oh, that's nice. Okay, so that makes,
0: I can see there that there is actually something achieved because knowing limitation or something, knowing privation. Yes. And we, we, Would you give a similar response to the why there is suffering or why there is i suppose the the abrahamic faiths have a big problem with explaining that and i'm i'm very unsatisfied with the responses but i mean i could see why the ultimate might want to be sort of um you know a rock star or something or <laughs> or uh, any number of very interesting lives such as your own for example <laughs> um but sorry i'm probing you now aren't i rather than you probing me but, yes, yes but why does the why does the ultimate consciousness want to, I mean, we think of tragically some lives that are very, very sad, you know, just living terrible suffering for um, a few weeks and then passing away. Or is this, again, just to experience that kind of mode of being, do you think? Or
1: That would be horrible if we took it just like that. It's like exposing an individual perspective to its own thing and making it suffer, you know, so that doesn't fit it's not satisfactory on the intuitive level also and I agree well the reason is it comes with the package. <laughs> and the package is that in order to understand and fully experience what it is truly like to be in a limited perspective, you have to let that limited individuality live its own reality and for that you have to give it the freedom to make decisions otherwise if you are part of a big machine and you have no freedom then you can no no more explain you know suffering and you can explain evil why evil comes you know why there is evil why there is destruction why there is all of that and so this has to bring you back to freedom and determinism and the fact that the package includes freedom as a necessity in order to be able to truly experience the reality from its own perspective because if you don't give freedom to the part then you know it's no more knowing from that perspective that's you know requires maybe more discussion but that is the basic reason now when you have freedom to choose something you come to what would be then the law. Is it the whole thing chaotic? You just leave it on its own and it can go anywhere. And this is where also you have to explain law and order and you have to explain what we can call action and reaction, conservation of energy. And the way I look at it is that one unbounded ocean of consciousness that is at the origin of everything, has to always be equal to itself because we go back to you know ex nihilo nihil fit with parmenides that nothing comes out of nothing so this can be explained in different ways it's like everything has been there before and therefore you can explain why it comes now fine we have that in the paradigm and also that wholeness cannot be other than itself now it can have a plus and minus but if it has a plus it has to have a minus otherwise it is distorted it is no more itself that also explains the conservation of energy the conservation of momentum the conservation of charge the conservation of energy the conservation of the universe why actually scientists discovered that the universe has zero energy in fact when you add up gravity plus energy, positive energy, and and, and you get actually the universe, it seems, starts with zero energy. So that zero energy is that one field. Now, if you create a positive charge, you have to create a negative charge, because otherwise you have distorted the wholeness of the original story, of the original, not story, the original thing. Now, this is where law comes from law so if you combine this with freedom to act okay you can create a positive charge but you cannot create a positive charge without a negative charge right but you cannot you simply cannot you cannot spend energy without using energy you cannot change momentum without having a negative one you cannot change spin without changing spin of another particle why it's for that same reason now if on a higher level of consciousness which is a human level let's say you make choices that are damaging or that are disturbing you cannot accept reap the consequences of that and get the balance of it so you're creating something you get the reaction back now it so happens that if you do the wrong between quotation mark, we have to define what is wrong, what is right. If then you get a negative thing. You hurt your friend, you created hurt in the universe on an abstract level. You create hurt in the universe, you have to absorb it, otherwise, the universe has been disturbed. Now, it happens in time and space in the relative field, but it is computed automatically in the ultimate reality that we're talking about and this is the reason for suffering so it is not that that consciousness says i want to experience everything so let this guy suffer so i experience suffering through him or through her right it's because it gave you the freedom and you created the disturbance in the universe Mm. and you have to absorb that so it actually itself suffers with you Mm. it doesn't want Mm. to suffer yeah, that's really, that's
0: really really helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, so some, I mean, I guess the free will part sounds, sounds a little bit like a lot of what Christian philosophers say to the problem of evil. And there always seems to be, to my mind, to be something to that, but it seems to me not, it can't be the full story. But then I think what you supplemented that then with certain facts about the ultimate reality having to be in balance and so on, seems to perhaps you know nicely supplement fill out that story a little bit more i mean this this is what i'm wrestling with in in this this new book i'm working on is looking at the middle ground options between the god of western religion and the atheism of western society and you know in the western intellectual thought you've got to fit into one of those camps you know which are you in and i think we get stuck in these dichotomies of thought of u s capitalism or Soviet communism or materialism or dualism, you know, and I always find i I never fit into either camp and, and you know I always feel that when you're talking to someone they're trying to judge you, which camp are you in? Are you on Dawkins' side or the Pope's you know and um, <laughs> but i in terms of the God of Western religion and the atheism of western society i've you know i find there's problems with both of these, the, 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 the problem of evil and suffering with the Abrahamic God, but also there's a discovery that the laws of physics are fine-tuned for the possibility of life, which I think is is a real big problem for the atheistic side. And I think it's something, as a culture, we're sort of kind of in denial about at the moment. I think, you know, we, we look back on um, the 17th, 16th century, rather, when there was emerging this observational evidence that the earth was not in the center of the universe, the sun was not going around the earth and people couldn't handle it. And they made up all sorts of, tried to explain it away, you know, these postulating so-called epicycles, like extra. So they thought everything was going around the earth, but they postulated little extra orbits as in addition to the orbits around the earth. And that didn't work. So then there's Epicycles upon epicycles, and and we look back and we think, oh God, they were. Why couldn't they just open themselves to the evidence? so oh, we're you know we're so much more enlightened now. But I think every generation thinks they're at the end of history. Every generation absorbs the beliefs of their time and won't give them up. the The great economist Keynes, the famous anecdote where a journalist said to him, "You didn't used to think this," and he said, "Well." when the evidence, when the facts change, I change my view. What do you do, sir? And, uh, you know, I think that's just so hard for human beings to do. And people get, you know, people talk about religion as a crutch, but I think a certain kind of secular scientism can be a sort of part of your identity and part of how you find security and understanding. And I just think, you know, I, I've read so much of the literature on this fine tuning stuff and I just think people are just, I mean, the problem was the Enlightenment aim was to follow the evidence where it leads. Yeah. But the Enlightenment aim, the Enlightenment also came with a certain conception of how the universe is supposed to look. And I think we're finding these two things in conflict. And I think people are just not following the evidence where it leads with with, with respect to fine-tuning. I think, I mean, it's a big discussion, but the attempt to explain it away in a multiverse, for example, is I think will be looked back on as the, epicycles upon epicycles of our generation. But, right, right. but I mean, you know, what, one thing I'm trying to push in this that's, is something that's well-known in academic philosophy, but because academics often just write for themselves and it doesn't get out to a broader audience, what I'm trying to get out to a broader audience with this book is the observation from experts in probability, philosophers of probability, trying to infer from something improbable about our universe to lots of other universes to try and explain away that improbability is just a, a, a logical flaw. Is a, is a fallacious inference? It's like I mean, just to give you an example, you know, suppose we go into a casino, and the first person we see is having an incredible run of good luck. You know, they're just winning after winning, getting double sixes, and and we say, oh "Wow!" And I say, "Oh, wow!" There must be lots of people playing in the casino tonight, and you say to me. What do you mean? What, why do you think there's lots of people playing in the casino? And I say, well,
1: probability,
0: <laughs> if there's just one person playing, it's really unlikely that they'd have such a run of luck. But if there's lots of people playing in the casino, then it's not so surprising. Now, everybody agrees that's a flawed inference because all you've observed is this one guy. No matter who else is playing or not playing, it doesn't make it any more likely that they're going to you know, have a good run. But this is exactly the same inference that is being made by, you know, lots of scientists and philosophers take the fine tuning seriously, because it obviously is very surprising. But then they try to say, oh, well, there must be lots of universes. Why have we won the cosmic lottery that exactly I haven't explained what this is, by the way, that the discovery that. For life to be physically possible, many numbers in physics had to fall in a certain narrow range, such that it's incredibly improbable that we just get the right numbers for life by chance. I mean, it's just more than astronomically improbable. So many scientists take this seriously. This is not controversial physics, and then say, Oh, well, there must be lots of other universes where the numbers came out bad, but that's just the kind of same fallacious inference you have in the multiverse in the casino case. And so actually, at some point, I think we're gonna have to face up to the fact that the scientific evidence has changed we do have overwhelming evidence that there is some kind of purpose going on here who knows what it is but that's weird it's not what we expected but we should follow the evidence where it leads and you know i think at some point that's going to happen and things are going to change
1: yeah wonderful it reminds me of a saying i'm sure you're familiar with it's when somebody says I've already made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hume is great on this, David Hume. The, um, I, I mean, I talk about this a little bit in my book. That he describes it very well. That people who don't like get ag- get some agitated when they there's some questioning of their beliefs or something, and they so they you know try to push it down and. Um, yeah, I think it's a human characteristic, isn't it? Which I think why is philosophy so important and Beautiful. why it should be taught more at schools, which it isn't in the UK or the US at, at an early level, at least. And, you know, once you realize that Descartes point that, you know, we don't even really know for sure whether whether I have hands, you know, it could be an illusion. Yeah. And, you know, some people think, why are you thinking about that? Let's just get on with your life. But I mean this Hume said that there's a very positive point to reflecting on that point of Descartes because once you realize that it's not even certain whether I have hands, then my natural dogmatism for my scientific or political opinions or everyday opinions, or whatever, is 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 also loosened a little bit in a in a healthy way, I think.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for your time, we took a lot of your time. It's really a joy. You're a great thinker and a true seeker of truth and ultimate reality. There are not so many because people think it's something beyond our capacity to come to. But that's why even Dr. Goldstein beautifully says in her book Plato and and, and all of that, that philosophy won't go away. It's actually making a big comeback because we realize the importance of the mind and thinking and, you know, both empirical and rational approaches and combining all that we know today, we're getting closer to truth, which is wonderful. I hope everything goes, continues with your mind chat, which I invite everyone to join and listen to and read your books. My book, if you have time, it's called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness it goes through some of the general points but you can skip through and go to where the logic and the paradigm is presented and i'm happy to of course discuss with you again and meet hopefully sometime maybe soon in the uk or anywhere when when you're around before we close would you like to say something more about any topic or thoughts that we discussed or anything else
0: which just to say, thanks very much, Tony. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. I am really looking forward to getting stuck into your book and 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 I hope I haven't probed you too much. I've just, yeah, it's been really interesting to to learn a, much more about your perspective and many of the questions I've had on this kind of view. I guess just if people would like learning more about my stuff on philipgoughphilosophy.com, my website's got academic and popular stuff. Or I also spend too much time which is not good for my spiritual health, arguing on Twitter. But (laughs) philip underscore goth, if anyone wants to raise some objections or agreement, I
1: always like to have a chat on Twitter. But yeah, I hope the conversation continues. Wonderful. I look forward to that. And greetings and hello to your family and to Dr. Frankish also, whom I had the joy to, to be with also in one of the podcasts. All the best. Take care. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks very much, Tony. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.